0: turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 23 through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Amen. So, let's begin this study of God's word by reminding ourselves of the context of this event within Matthew's gospel narrative. Uh, Matthew is painstakingly building a case around the Hebrew understanding of Messiah, uh, the savior whose coming was foretold and foreshadowed throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Uh, Matthew is throughout chapters five through 12 Uh, really outlining this theme, working through this major theme of Jesus' messianic authority. Uh, And Matthew intends to help us understand the way in which the suffering servant that we see in Isaiah 53, right? Favorite Advent passage is also the fulfillment of passages like Isaiah chapter 11, which you see on the screen, where we see the Messiah as a kingly deliverer uh, with both a present and a future kingdom. So thinking back uh, a little bit in our study of Matthew to chapter 5, uh, remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says at least six times, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He, he consistently is demonstrating his authority as Messiah Uh, superseding the law of Moses, uh, teaching a higher standard of righteousness than that of the Pharisees. Uh, We also see in chapter six uh, that he teaches prayer as though he knows firsthand what God uh, wants to hear from us. Uh, Later in that same chapter, we, we hear him teaching the crowd that they have no reason to be anxious and promising them on God's behalf, on God's behalf that the Father will provide everything needed by those who seek his kingdom first. Uh, Then later in chapter seven, he draws the borders of the kingdom of God. He, He says that he himself will exclude workers of righteousness with a word of command saying, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. And you hear his authority as Messiah. So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew makes this theme, this idea clear. As, as he uh, records these words, the crowds were astonished, astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So alongside the crowds, we get to witness the authority that Jesus holds over the physical world, even over healings, uh, Uh, healing incurable diseases, even from afar, with a word. Uh, And we see the unmatched sway that he has over the metaphysical uh, or the immaterial world as he casts out demons with a word. So we can see Jesus' authority as Messiah becoming clearer in the broader context, but now in the immediate context of, of verses 23 through 27 that we'll look at this morning. Matthew is carrying forward this theme of following Jesus that really uh, Trey introduced for us last time we were in Matthew. Uh, If you remember, we looked at an an interaction between Jesus and two different potential disciples, sort of would-be disciples, right? One who was very eager uh, and perhaps had not counted the cost, and another who was to lax, and and did not sense the urgency of following Jesus while he had the opportunity. Uh, So even in the verse preceding that passage, in verse 18, uh, Matthew says, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. So, So those verses that we looked at last time in Matthew with Trey 19 through 22, are bookended with these boat preparations. It's almost as though the conversation is happening on the way to the boat. They're talking about following Jesus. What is it like to follow Jesus? And so as Matthew introduces his narrative uh, of this boat trip, um, he, I think, intentionally chooses this same language. The disciples are following Jesus into the boat. And so in, in Matthew's mind, this is a story about what it's like to follow Jesus as much as it is anything else. Uh, let's, let's look at verse 23 specifically and this, and this trip and, and sort of establish a little bit more the, the context of what we're looking at. Um, first, there's no indication from the passage that anyone but his closest disciples came with him in the boat. Um, little interesting side jaunt, but archaeological evidence would suggest that most of the, the vessels that were active on the Sea of Galilee at the time wouldn't have been bigger than about 12 or 15 people in capacity. So um, right around what we might expect if Jesus is going with the 12 into the boat. Uh, Mark says in his, in his parallel account that other boats crossed the sea with them. Uh, But according to Matthew 4.13, Jesus was living in Capernaum at the time. You can see from my masterful use of Google Maps here, um, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Capernaum is there on the north edge, the northwest edge uh, of the map. Uh, This was a a small fishing village. Um, And this seems to be most likely where they would have departed from. This is where most of these conversations are happening. And uh, for for their destination, we can look forward to verse 28, which we won't really discuss uh, this week, that uh, Matthew says they were headed for the country of the Gadarenes. Now, Mark and Luke say they were headed for the country of the Gerasenes, but both are there on the southeast edge of the Sea of Galilee, or just past there. Um, so they were probably headed southeast, just like we see in the line across the, uh, the sea there. Thankfully, the borders of the sea have not changed if you're worried about me using Google. Uh, there, uh, there's actually, again, interesting little tidbit. Uh, you can still visit the ruins of the Capernaum Synagogue on the edge of the, the sea there. Very, very cool. Uh, so this map should be pretty close to... Where they were, they, they were going, where they were traveling. And that trip is 10 miles. That line that you see uh, is actually my measuring line. That's 10 miles. And so um, this is not a short trip for a small boat by any means. Moving on to verse 24. There was a great storm. There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Uh, Now, if you haven't spent a lot of time in boats, uh, being swamped may not give you a very clear idea of what was going on. Matthew's language uh, puts it in a sense of the boat was being covered by the waves. The boat was being overwhelmed by the waves waves water was pouring in, and the boat was in the process of sinking. Now, Jesus asleep, while everyone else is afraid for their lives, could pose a bit of a puzzler uh, right we We could even translate this: he continued sleeping, he slept through it. Uh, in other words, Jesus here is placidly sleeping through a violent storm, high winds, and the panicked shouts of his friends. Now, one thing that that Ben pointed out to us uh, early on in, in our sermon series was this idea that when we come across something in the Scriptures that makes us uncomfortable, that we find difficult, that is not the passage or the idea that you avoid. That is the place where you press in, where you study, where you try hard to understand. And so we have an opportunity here to put that into practice uh, by looking closely at Jesus asleep while his friends presumably need him. So Jesus, again, very recently has just told would-be followers, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We have seen consistently Jesus maintaining almost a frenetic level of service, of healings, of teachings, of constantly meeting the needs of people who are coming to him for for truth, for the news of the kingdom, for healing physically. So maybe we shouldn't be so surprised that he's managing to sleep through all of this, but... uh, I do think it is significant to observe that the Savior, God in the flesh, is taking time to rest. And in everything, Jesus remains our example. So I I just want to pose a question to you before we get any further into the passage. The question is, what does perfect faith look like? What would the actions of perfect faith be? And I wonder if we've, we've ever considered that. So we'll keep that, that question in mind, and we'll come back to it later. Verse 25. They went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. We perish. Consider this, that at least four of these disciples in the boat with him were professional fishermen and presumably experienced sailors, right? Right? Uh, who knew this very lake, this was where they were called. They were in absolute panic. They were at their wits end. And all of the evidence would suggest that they are in mortal peril. As we saw earlier, this is not a short trip. And so it's very likely they could have been miles from land by the time a storm is able to rise up and threaten the boat. Even in calm waters, an average swimmer can only expect to make about a mile an hour. And experienced swimmers will tire out in not much more time in these kinds of Uh, high waves from just treading water. So Mark's account says that it was evening before they set out, which means that they might not have even been able to see land at this point uh, or known which way to swim if they needed to. So this was a dire situation and the disciples were well aware of the danger. And you can hear that edge on their words, we are perishing. We could take this as the wrong way to address Jesus. We could take these as the wrong words, but I don't think that is the case. Uh, This kind of address, this kind of way of speaking to the Lord is not uncommon in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. And uh, here are just a few examples on the next slide. Uh, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Remember that even Jesus quotes this uh, on the cross, and and obviously he's calling our minds to the, the entirety of that psalm and the way that he is fulfilling it. But this is a way that the psalmists commonly reach out for God from, from places of Of great difficulty. So, I think rather that we're supposed to read between the lines a bit. We hear the edge in their words and we read the content of Jesus' rebuke to them. And those are enough to tell us that the problem here that the disciples have is an underlying lack of faith. So, verse 26. He said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Or we could also translate this, why are you so cowardly, you faithless ones? And the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, does this seem like a disproportionate response? If we take a moment to think about it, why does he pick on their fear? Aren't they in mortal peril? We've established that pretty clearly Isn't it reasonable to be afraid when you're facing imminent death? So Matthew captures this word, you of little faith. It's one word that that we have translated several times uh, in his gospel. And each time, Jesus is not using this word to describe the difference between people who are in the faith and people who are out of the faith. Uh, This word is not used to draw a dichotomy between saving faith and unbelief, or sheep and goats. This this word in Matthew's vocabulary and the way that Jesus uses it, this describes someone who lacks enough faith to overcome a trial, to stay the course, to succeed, to prove God's faithfulness in their hardship. This rebuke that he gives is directed at his disciples who have already left so much to follow him. And he will later call them his sheep. So Jesus wants us to know that faith, well-informed confidence in the person and promises of God, faith is the antidote to fear of anything less. And I put together a slide. That was as far as I could get on one slide. Uh, of just a handful of reference passages. If you want to take out a phone and snap a picture of that for later reading, that's, uh, that's fine. But uh, I won't touch on, on many of those, but I think it's safe to say that the world is full of scary stuff not only legitimately dangerous things, but also the kinds of vague possibilities and anxieties and worries that keep millions of people up at night. But we need to be convinced, we need to see clearly for ourselves that God's word doesn't encourage us to give into those fears for a moment. These are only what I found by skimming. Just very quick. There's lots and lots more passages that deal with our confidence in God as connected to faith. So, faith in God is the antidote to fear of anything less. And I want you to notice that, that phrase at the end. Fear of anything less than God. So, this slide will hopefully clarify the last slide uh, to to help us see that it is both right and good to fear God. The Psalms say, "The fear of the Lord is clean it 's right and good to fear God while rejecting all lesser fears. so again we won 't touch on these, but as a side note. Uh, I, I want to be careful with the term fear. I, I remember myself being taught um, Sunday school, probably, uh, way, way back. It's hazy. Uh, that fear of the Lord is merely a strong word for respect. And uh, that idea is a bit reductive. We, we don't want to miss the point of the Bible's use of the word fear because certainly fear does allow room for deep awe and respect but before yahweh before yahweh the god of the universe fear is also an emotional visceral rational response to witnessing the the greatness the otherness of someone who as who is as as far above us as the heavens are above the earth right So if you read very many of these passages, you, you quickly will realize that, that throughout the Bible, believing in God is essentially interchangeable with fearing God. And in fact, the more clearly a person sees God, the more they fear him. He is good. He is good. And I want you to hear that He's more good than we can ever imagine or fully understand. But to sinners, he is not safe. But this idea is, this is one of the most wonderful, unique things about the one true God as he reveals himself in the scriptures. When anyone comes into his presence invariably, right, they fall down on their faces in worship, in fear. But he is quick to put a hand on them, to lift them up and to reassure them. I think of, I think of early in Revelation, John, first time he sees Jesus, he falls on his face as though he were dead. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And, and puts his hand on him. So, beloved, falling down in worshipful, reverent fear is the right and natural response to seeing God, to knowing God, to believing God. But we can trust that God lifts up those who are humble, right? Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and whoever Uh, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The words of Jesus later. So, in order to help us wrap our minds around these dual concepts of fear, uh, let's think about Exodus 20, verse 20. You may turn there. And you may have noticed that it was on both slides because it uses this word fear in both ways we are discussing. Fear of God and rejecting lesser fears. And it really captures the tension that we're discussing here. Uh, As Moses says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So, fear of God is the antidote to fear of anything less, right? I hope you can hear that from the passage, this, this differentiation he makes between the two. So, moving back to Matthew, 5, Matthew 8, we'll, we'll look again at the second half of verse 26, Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So all at once in this moment, we recognize, I hope, in Jesus, the authority that ordered the waters at creation, the authority that parted the Red Sea and made it dry ground during the Exodus. We recognize the saving power of Yahweh in him, exactly as it's described in Psalm 107. So let me read that for you here. It says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing, great business, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of Yahweh, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their calamitous plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Does that sound familiar? Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. We can hear in verse 26 of Matthew that great calm. And he brought them to their desired haven. So let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Jesus is the incarnate Yahweh. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We had no hope, and God himself took on human flesh to come down to us. If the disciples had even begun to understand the mission that Jesus was on, that his time had not yet come, right? If they had understood his authority over creation or his person, they might have handled things differently. And and we could we could imagine for a moment, you, you know, maybe a, a few different options of how they might have approached this. This this kind of thought exercise can be helpful sometimes. Uh, so say they might have woken him sooner first off, when things were still calm and not seemingly going to him as a last resort. Or a a second option might be um, that they might not have woken him him at all. They might have continued praying and, and, and patiently bailing out while they waited and hoped for salvation. Or maybe they would have done exactly what they did here in this passage. But maybe with the the trust, the confidence in their words that would not have betrayed the underlying struggle to believe. Because we don't want to miss the point. Just, Just as in Psalm 107, people are going down to the sea, they're doing business on the ships, they see the works of Yahweh, they encounter a storm, And they cry out, and and he saves them. And that's the same pattern that we see here in Matthew 8. There is some faith here. This is not a matter of you of little faith being the disciples are outside of the faith. These are struggling brothers in Christ who are having a hard time trusting sufficiently to overcome the trial that they face, and to fully demonstrate the the faithfulness and the promises of God. So, verse 27. The men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Now, this would seem to be the issue at hand, right? The disciples have yet to fully grasp who Jesus is. And so the question is, I think, do they need more information? Remember that, that they have recently seen Jesus performing miracle upon miracle they, they saw him perform the miraculous healing for the Roman centurion from afar, with a word. And remember that Jesus praised that Roman centurion for his faith in Jesus' authority. No, the disciples, they already have the witness of the Old Testament scriptures, all of the prophecies, They have the experience of walking with Jesus and witnessing his incredible teaching and his miraculous works. And so the question that they ask, what sort of man is this? We have to look at that. We have to answer it for ourselves. We have to respond, what sort of man is this Jesus? When fears arise, how will we respond to those in light of this question? Now, I, I want to say right here that just about the last thing I want to do this morning is make someone feel guilty for being afraid. Uh, If you are facing job loss or a health crisis or family strife during the holidays or or rising food costs, you're in good company. The, The scriptures are full of people who can relate to facing down scary stuff. Read the Psalms, read Hebrews 12, look at Jesus He he may have rebuked them for their lack of faith. But he did answer them. He did save them. He stuck with them. He was patient and gentle with them. He went to the cross for them. He rose again and he stands at the right hand of the Father to intercede for all who trust in him. Are you so different, you who face trials, who face fears today? No, there is grace for your weakness. There is grace even for those who lack faith. There is grace to help in times of need, but there is no grace for self-sufficiency or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. There is no grace for pride in the face of Yahweh who provides all things for those who come to him. It's not the the healthy who need a physician. It's the sick. But I want to take a moment to encourage you by saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? If that is true, I mean, really, really true, it spells death for all of our lesser fears. But if that's not enough, let's think about this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's pretty encouraging. And we we haven't even gotten out of Romans 8, right? So I want to, as we consider how we respond to fears how we might respond in faith. Give us a few a few pointers. First, when you face fears, speak scriptural truth to yourself. Jude says that there is this responsibility for believers to work on their faith. You, beloved, this is Jude 20 and 21. You, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God or keep yourselves loving God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So just like we've been doing this morning, all of these passages, all of these thoughts, the point is, Speak scriptural truth to yourself. Second, get close to the local church. Don't hang out on the fringes. Don't show up and do the minimum and check a box because nowhere else will you get more faith building done than among the faithful. Than in close communion with the faithful. It it just made me think of 1 Peter 2 5, where he says, You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. You, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, you are being built up together. Third, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. The scriptures are full of promises that God helps those who come to him with an acute awareness of their need. And if you feel faithless, if you feel afraid, bring your weakness to the Lord. Bring your weakness to brothers and sisters and get encouragement, get correction, get scriptural exhortation. Is sometimes this kind doesn't go out except by prayer, right? Last thought, sometimes we, we don't know when we are afraid or we don't know what we are afraid of. And sometimes, honestly, we have to take an inventory of our fears because it can be hard to be self-aware, right? It can be hard to recognize the fear of man, when we haven't thought about it in a while. Inventory your fears. Look at those passages. Look at any passage that deals with fear in the scriptures and take inventory of yourself and your soul, your spiritual health, and say, what am I afraid of apart from God? And how can I crucify that fear for the sake of his glory? How can I grow my confidence in his great name and his great power, his unending mercy and his everlasting love? Let's pray and ask the Lord now to help us and give thanks for all of his gracious promises to us. Lord, your kindness is everlasting. And we we are worms, or we would be nothing except for your grace. But Lord, we long to trust you, to believe you wholeheartedly. Lord, because where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, Lord Jesus. We believe, Lord, but help our unbelief. For the sake of your great love, for the sake of your great mercy, Help us to trust you and not to fear anything that is frightening. Help us to see you. And help us to believe with a whole and undivided heart, Lord. Help us as a body to encourage one another in the faith Lord, fill us with your spirit as a seal of our redemption, as an encouragement, as a comforter. You are beautiful and kind, Lord. We look to you and we hope in you. Amen.